All right, welcome to the John Bryan Podcast. I'm a civil rights lawyer, a political scientist, amateur historian, gun nut, and washed up amateur strongman. But most of uh, what I do, and the only thing really that people pay me to talk about, has to do with the law. Um, you know, I've been watching a lot of this stuff that's been happening. Well, really, the only thing that you can see on the news is about the impeachment. And, you know, I learned, I don't know, maybe eight months ago or so, I stopped watching the news, the TV news entirely. Um, you know, it just, someone told me that they did it, and so, so I did it. And you know what? It makes you a happier person just to stop watching the news because it's, it's just all negative. But, you know, doing what I do for a living, and it really makes me mad to see, you know, all this impeachment stuff. I mean, really. So they bring in these three so-called expert witnesses to testify as to when impeachment is appropriate and when it's not. I mean, really, does it really matter what a law professor says? Uh, one of the law professors that testified was from my alma mater, from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where I went. And you know what? I, I never had the guy as a law professor. He must have been after my time. Um, my constitutional law professor while at UNC uh, was a great man. I mean, he was, uh, he was a dyed-in-the-wool liberal Democrat, and he had run for um, the U.S. Senate in Colorado. And he was the dean of the law school at the time, and he was a great guy and I had a great relationship with him, Dean Nickel. And, you know, we could disagree on a lot of things, um, philosophically, politically, even as to the Constitution. But, you know, I really learned a lot from him. And to, to hear this guy come and testify, and, and I didn't listen to it. I don't need to listen to it. I can imagine what he said. Well, why don't we just look at the Constitution? What does the Constitution say? It says the president can be impeached for high crimes and misdemeanors. It doesn't say quid pro quo, or it doesn't say we don't like the politics of the president or the outcome of the election, or we hate the president. It says high crimes and misdemeanors. And so far, what high crimes and misdemeanors have been shown? There's been absolutely nothing. And it's just been a circus. I heard one of the senators say so far that hearsay was more reliable than any kind of other evidence. I mean, what? I, I think he misunderstood a quote that he had heard one time. The actual quote which he had heard and not quite understood, because some of these guys are real idiots, is that circumstantial evidence can be better than direct evidence in a trial, which is absolutely true. It is not a saying that hearsay is better than non-hearsay. That is absolutely absurd. That's impossible. That's illogical. It cannot be better. It, by definition, is not. Now, circumstantial evidence, that's an entirely different concept, which some of these idiots clearly don't understand. Circumstantial evidence is like, I woke up in the morning and there was snow on the ground. 
I didn't see it snow, but the circumstantial evidence tells me, because there's snow on the ground, that it must have fallen over the night. That's circumstantial evidence, and that's great evidence. You know, in fact, that's a lot better evidence than somebody telling their sibling over the phone, um, and their sibling lives in Florida, so they, they don't see snow, but the sibling says, yeah, it snowed last night. You know what? Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. Maybe they hadn't looked outside last night, and they just had a dream that it snowed. You know, people misremember things. People missee things. For instance, also, you, you, you saw footprints in the snow leading to your doorstep. So that's circumstantial evidence that somebody walked to your front door sometime after it snowed last night. You didn't see it happen, but you see the footsteps in the snow. That's circumstantial evidence. So that is the quote that was misconstrued or misremembered by whatever idiot said that hearsay evidence is better. You know, it all comes down to, and I study, I litigate, well, I mostly litigate rather than study. Um, I study as needed, and uh, it'd be nice to be a professor and, and, and read things as you wanted to, but I have to read things that pertain to how I can or cannot help my clients. So I litigate the Constitution, you know, daily. I all morning so far, I've, I've, been, I've been writing about the Fourth Amendment. I've been writing about open carry rights in West Virginia on a, in a case that I'm working on. So, you know, that's what I do is, is I, I read and I write about the Constitution and how it applies to different facts that, that citizens deal with. So there's two general ways of looking at the Constitution. And when you go to law school... Generally, all the, the, the professors usually are always um, liberal, uh, liberal, eh, sometimes left-wing people who see the Constitution as they call it a, quote, living and breathing document that, you know, is old and, and, uh, it just it needs to be updated from time to time as society changes and technology improves. And I've even heard them say, as our morals change. Now, the, that is a, an interpretation or that is a constitutional philosophy that is, by definition, liberal. I mean, it's a liberal application of the words that are written there. I mean, there's no dispute as to what words are in the Constitution. The dispute all has to do with, well, how do we apply and interpret those words moving forward, you know, 200-something years after they were written? So the liberal point of view is to expand those words. For instance, abortion. Abortion is, has fallen under the right of so-called privacy under the Constitution, and that's the Roe v. Wade case. But you can open up your, your copy of the U.S. Constitution, and you can look all day for the right to privacy, and you're not going to find it because it wasn't written in there. So you have Supreme Court justices who in order to get the result that they want, that other like-minded people want, they have to create new uh, constitutional law, essentially. So they have created or implied a right to privacy 
in the Constitution, even though it's not written in there. That's one way of looking at the Constitution. The other way is what's, what's known as an originalist point of view. And that is the, the completely opposite way of looking at the Constitution as how can we interpret these words as they were written, as they were intended. So, for instance, when as a civil rights lawyer, I look at the, the Fourth Amendment a lot. And the Fourth Amendment um, prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures without a warrant. Now, that's essentially what it says, and it doesn't elaborate a whole lot. Now, we know that when the Fourth Amendment was ratified in, what, 1791, there were no cars then. And almost all of the issues, 90% probably, of the issues that come before the courts regarding search and seizure and when is a warrant required or when is it not required, that all has to do with cars now mostly, and that's not something that was anticipated or, or that was a concern or a problem in the 1790s. But we, we can't take the position, in my opinion, that, well, we have to stick to the words of the Constitution exactly. So I see somewhat of a hybrid view. Yes, we need to stick to the original intent and meaning of the words that are in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, but we also have to interpret those in such a way as to fit our technology as it changes, our lives as it changes. We do not need to change the meaning of the words or the, the intent of the words. So, you know, it, it can be tricky. Yes, it is true that the Constitution can be viewed as a living and breathing document because it can't, it, ha it must adapt to our world, our life as it changes. But they take it too far, in my opinion. It cannot, we cannot adapt it to be just whatever we want it to be. We can't, we can't adapt it based on social justice reasons or uh, changing morality, um, you know, things that they are doing here. Um, so we need to just interpret as best as we can to new additions to our lives and try to apply the old ideas, the original good ideas. So getting back to the whole impeachment mess, you know, are we really going to take the Roe v. Wade route of creating new uh, rights to privacy as it pertains to impeachment of a president? I mean, really? Do we need to create a whole new... Um, set of rules on when the opposing party in power can impeach the president. We could probably come up with, if using uh, law professors really, we could come up with a set of rules and a whole new court to examine presidents to see whether or not they should be impeached or they should not be impeached. But do we really want to go down that route? And shouldn't there be more evidence of some sort of a crime here? And, you know, people always refer to Watergate, but, you know, uh, Richard Nixon was not impeached. He would have been impeached, and he probably would have been convicted and removed from office. And he knew that, so he removed himself. But there, there was evidence of an actual crime that was committed and an actual cover-up that the president was involved in. And to 
make this same case for a situation where, yes, they don't like the president, they want him removed, but the problem is, is the same problem that you always have when you disregard the words in the, in the Constitution. The problem is, is what happens next? What happens down the road? There's always a slippery slope with the Constitution. If we allow, for instance, you know, people that we dislike generally, say sex offenders, and not just um, the, the gray area sex offenders, say the real pedophile, um, violent sex offenders, we pretty much can mostly all agree that we don't care for those individuals. But do we just hang them in the town square without constitutional rights? No, because what happens if we do that? Then, well, maybe you know somebody who is in a different category, maybe not as bad, um, say, you know, say uh, drug addicts. You know, drug addicts who have been stealing things. All right, so we really dislike them. Then we do the same things to them. And then, and so on, and so on. It's a slippery slope. It's always a slippery slope. Clarence Darrow, the famous trial lawyer, uh, one of the fam most famous lawyers um, ever to have lived in the United States, he said once that you can only protect your liberties in this world by protecting the other man's freedom. And that is exactly the truth. And that's the hardest part about my job is in every case I'm faced with eventually looking at an eight-person federal jury, just regular people picked off the street, essentially, and trying to explain to them why, even though maybe they don't like my client and they like police officers in general, and they may even like this police officer that's sitting there. But they have to protect this guy's rights if they believe that there was a civil rights violation. They have to make that finding. And you know what? That is not easy to do. And I completely understand. And I'm still learning how to convince people of this and how to make that argument. But really, they only understand when it hits them where it hurts. And I've seen this in my criminal practice, um, in other types of cases. It happens all the, not all the time, but every once in a while, where somebody gets charged with a crime, or they get mixed up in the criminal justice system somehow, or their child or their grandchild does. And they've been an upstanding citizen their entire lives. They've been a law and order person. They've had these same thoughts that, that sex offenders need to be strung up and, and people who are stealing property should be shot on sight and whatnot. And, and you know, they've, they've always had this trust in the criminal justice system. And then they have some personal experience where, you know, maybe their child or their grandchild, as they see things anyways, are treated unfairly. And whatever the case may be, whatever the facts may be, now they're looking at it from the other point of view of, well, what, what are the rights that, that can be protected? Surely the rights have been violated here. So, you know, people tend to look at their own self-interest just intrinsically. And that's human nature. That's instinct. So how do we explain that to people?
Well, anyways, that's enough about impeachment. You got you got enough of that on TV. Let's talk about something that I get questions about all the time, and that's that's just a better topic to to talk about. Um, you know, Second Amendment law, Fourth Amendment law, they come together. Open carry of firearms. You know, a lot of states in this country have what's called open carry laws or open carry of firearms, which means that just like it's the Wild West, you can strap pistols onto your belt, you can put a, a rifle or shotgun over your shoulder, and you can walk down the side of the road, walk down the sidewalk. Now, there might be um, ramifications of that, but if it's in an open carry state, then it's perfectly legal. Now, let me start with a disclaimer. I'm only licensed to practice law in the state of West Virginia and in the federal courts related to the state of West Virginia. Therefore, I'm not giving legal advice to anybody. And in fact, if you have not paid me money and or you have not signed a contract with me stating that I'm your lawyer, I'm not your lawyer and I'm not giving you legal advice. I'm just talking as John Bryan right now. But open carry is one of those areas of the law that's going to continue to get litigated because this is one of those natural gray areas where you experience this push-pull between, you know, how do we interpret the Constitution? And where open carry encounters the Constitution, well, what rights, what, what rights are you exercising when you open carry and, you, and you're worried about um, encounters with law enforcement? Well, you might want to say the Second Amendment, but generally you're not exercising essentially your, your Second Amendment right because if you're in an open carry state and you're open carrying, that's probably because the state law or it is because the state law in your state allows has authorized open carry. And here in West Virginia, the legislature passed a constitutional amendment or constitutional carry as it's called to allow um, you know, any citizens, really, who are not prohibited from possessing a firearm to open carry a firearm. So they're not really, here in West Virginia, exercising Second Amendment rights, though in theory you are, and you know, it, in, in a broader meaning you're exercising your Second Amendment rights, but really you're exercising your constitutional, state constitutional rights when you're open carrying in West Virginia. On the other hand, if you look at issues that pop up when you deal with law enforcement, then you're talking about federal law. You're talking about your Fourth Amendment rights, you know, against unreasonable search and seizure. Okay, here's what happens. You're walking down the side of the road, you're walking down the sidewalk, or you're in a store, wherever. All right, you're open carrying. Inevitably, somebody calls 911, someone calls the police, makes a complaint that there's an armed person walking down the road or down the sidewalk. And that's all the information that's given. So the, the police respond. Now, what are the rights at play? Can the police officer stop that person? Can he not stop that person? Can he ask for ID? Is he not entitled to ask for ID? What if the state law requires citizens to um, hand over their ID to law enforcement officers when stopped? So if they're allowed to stop the person, do they have to give them their ID? Does the police officer have to witness or suspect that some crime has been committed? Well, these are difficult questions. 
And, you know, this is an issue I, I have a case on right now, and I've been drafting documents um, all morning trying to submit something here this afternoon on a case dealing with this very issue. And in my opinion, in my reading of, of the case law, you know, and what we're looking at here is federal case law interpreting the Fourth Amendment. And the Fourth Amendment, again, just says that there shall be no unreasonable searches and seizures without a warrant. So if a, if a guy is open carrying, walking down the side of the road, can a police officer stop that person? Can they pull up with their blue lights on and, and force that person to stop and have an encounter with them? Well, here's the, here's the deal with that. It depends on what the facts are. So has there been some indication that the person has committed some crime? So if it's an open carry state like West Virginia, just by virtue of somebody carrying a firearm, as long as they're not threatening somebody with it or acting unsafe with it, visibly unsafe with it, is that, can that be suspicion of a crime? And no, it can't. There's a phrase, and one of the important phrases that you'll read in all of the, these Fourth Amendment cases is reasonable suspicion. There's, there's really two important phrases when it, when it deals with interactions between police officers and citizens. The first is reasonable suspicion. The second is probable cause. And usually we talk about reasonable suspicion first. So a police officer gets a call, 911 call, that there's a person, there's a man with a gun. There's no other information. It doesn't say that he's pointing it at anybody or threatening anybody. The officer arrives and observes a man with a gun walking down the side of the road. Now, does the officer know this individual? Maybe the officer knows this guy. Maybe he um, arrested him once before and knows that he had been committed, um, convicted of a felony or maybe domestic violence, either of which would make that person um, a person prohibited from possessing a firearm. That would place knowledge in the mind of the police officer that a crime is being committed or maybe uh, may have been committed. So that is, what is it? Reasonable suspicion. At least that's, that's a reasonable suspicion to engage in a stop of that individual. Well, what if the police officer's never seen this guy before? So all he sees is that he's open carrying a firearm. Maybe it's in a holster on his belt. Maybe it's a hunting rifle strapped over his shoulder. Whatever the case may be, that, that's no distinction. So if he has no knowledge of the person, he doesn't know him from Adam. He doesn't know if he has a criminal record. All he knows is that he has a gun. Otherwise, he observes nothing. Uh, he observes no crime being committed. He does not observe um, any unsafe behavior or threatening behavior. Now, this police officer might subjectively disagree with the concept of open carry. He might think it's stupid. He might think it endangers him and his colleagues. That's irrelevant. If the law is open carry, it doesn't matter what he personally thinks. The fact is, is that it's all going to come down to whether there's reasonable suspicion present. 
Now, he could approach this guy, and the, the person could be um, you know, compliant and agree to talk to him and, and uh, discuss his, you know, his, his criminal record or lack of criminal record, hand over his ID or, or you know, tell him where he's going, all that sort of stuff. You know, the, that could happen and does happen, and that's not going to create any civil rights issues because nobody's challenging it. So what happens if this police officer decides to encounter and stop, turns on his blue lights and tells the person to stop and approaches the person? Is this a, is this a, a, a stop just like a traffic stop? Yes, it is. Or rather, I should say, it probably is. You know, it always depends on the facts. Police officers, we have to remember, always have the same rights that we do because they're citizens as well. So, you know, if I as a private citizen see somebody walking out in front of my office on the sidewalk with an AR strapped over their shoulder, I can walk up to them and say, hey, buddy, what, you know, what's your name? Where are you going? Maybe I'm concerned about it. Maybe I'm not. You know, I that's not necessarily a, a, a stop under the Fourth Amendment. That's not necessarily a seizure of any sort because I don't have the right to do that. I don't appear to have the right to do that. But if I'm wearing a uniform and I turn on my blue lights, I'm creating facts that would, would create a, a reasonable belief in one's mind that they have no choice but to stop and be subjected to it. So, you know, there are always gray areas and facts that, that can change things. So, you know, we can, we're entitled to our own laws, or we're entitled to the law, but we're not entitled to our own facts. So, you know, as lawyers, we have to deal with the facts that we're given. So what it comes down to in West Virginia or other open carry states, we have to look at the officer's knowledge at the time this stop occurs. Did he have some reason to believe or reasonable suspicion that a crime had been committed and that this individual may have committed it. If the call was that there was a robbery down the street by a guy and he matches that description, then of course, hell yeah, he's, there's going to be reasonable, reasonable suspicion to stop and, and ID the guy. But if it's just, you know, some nosy um, grandma with, with, you know, with binoculars watching what's going on, and is just afraid of seeing a gun, and the officer doesn't hear of a crime being committed that he can suspect this person of, of committing, and observes no other crime, here's what the law is. He is not allowed to just perform a stop of this individual and demand his ID and run a background check on him just to see if maybe he's prohibited from possessing a firearm. Because there's case law on that, that has, that, have, that has addressed this very issue. It, it has said that, no, you cannot do that. Now, there's this other concept that you'll read about in, in Fourth Amendment cases called a Terry stop or a Terry frisk. Now, this is something, this is a, a scenario where a police officer can encounter somebody and can actually search them without a warrant. But and even without probable cause. And probable cause is, is what's required to get a warrant, but um, sometimes an officer can search if they have, quote, probable cause. But going back to this reasonable suspicion, you know, to stop somebody, say if there is reasonable suspicion 
then officers can perform what's called a Terry frisk of an individual where they kind of search him for weapons or, you know, um, you know, things that could endanger the officer or other officers, personal safety. And that's called a Terry frisk. And you'll, you'll, you'll see that phrase in there, but it's still, even though some police officers don't understand that, even some judges don't understand it, even to perform a Terry frisk, you still have to have reasonable suspicion to make a stop. A police officer cannot just go walk around and go up to any person they want and question them and then Terry frisk them. Of course, they can go up and talk to anybody just like you or I can, but that doesn't include the right to do a Terry frisk or a pat down or a quick search for, for weapons or any type of search without reasonable suspicion. So there always has to be some sort of knowledge gained by the officer that a crime was committed and that this suspect may have committed it. It doesn't take a whole lot. The bar is pretty low. Um, there's a Fourth Circuit case that was a couple years ago where there was a Hispanic guy in North Carolina. I think he was just walking down the side of the road and, and maybe it was dark and and there was a report of a burglary nearby, and this guy um, actually met the description or was close to the description of what the suspect looked like. So the officer approached the guy, and he was armed, and he was, he was open carrying a firearm. Now, that was legal in North Carolina at the time, but he still had reasonable suspicion, the court held, because... He met the, there was a burglary, there was a crime, and there was a reason to believe maybe he was the guy who did it because he met the description. And when the officer stopped this guy, he was, it was completely legal. And, um, you know, he was entitled to do a Terry Frisk at that time. But I think what happened was, is he had him put his hands on the, on, it was either on the wall or on the hood of the car. And here's the problem of, of what happened in that case was, is that there was a language barrier. And having been a prosecutor in North Carolina myself, I have tried criminal cases before using all translators, you know, because there are a lot of Spanish-speaking people there, and the police encounter them. And maybe they do speak English, maybe they don't. Sometimes they pretend. But in any event, this guy apparently could not speak English or did not speak English well. And he was told by the officer not to touch his gun. Apparently, he misunderstood, possibly, and thought he was supposed to give the gun to the police officer. So he grabbed it with his hand, which was a big mistake, and he ends up getting shot. And so this ends up all the way at the Fourth Circuit. And so they're facing a situation where... Yes, North Carolina is an open carry state. He had committed no crime. He was doing what he was allowed to do under North Carolina law. But because of the burglary call and because of his description matching, at least according to the facts before the court, there was reasonable suspicion for a stop. And at that point, the police officer is really entitled to, to do a Terry Frisk. He's entitled to disarm him if he wants to. He's entitled to tell him not to touch his gun. And when he went for the gun, you know, I mean, there's always an issue of whether, whether it was reasonable for him to see that as a threat or whether, you know, any reasonable officer would have just seen that he misunderstood 
that's can be a question for a jury. But, but um, you know that you know facts like those can change the case. There was another case in North Carolina that was a Fourth Circuit case that might surprise some people, and um, this one I remember hearing the oral arguments for this one. It was before uh, Judge Gregory, uh, who's an African American uh, um, Fourth Circuit judge. And, you know, it, he has a unique way of looking at things, and he kind of brings his own personal experience, and, and li- or at least as I heard him talking about it uh, during the oral arguments of this case, into, you know, how he sees the application of the law. And what had happened in this case is, I think it was a trailer park, and this may have been North Carolina again, I, I don't recall, but... Um, this this guy, the homeowner in this trailer, thought that that maybe there there was a burglar outside, and he saw somebody peeking in his window or creeping around outside, some sort of prowler situation, and so he grabs his gun and he goes out on the front porch. Turns out it was police officers, and they had they they did never turn their emergency lights on. They had kind of snuck up to the house. And, you know, I don't remember what the call was. Maybe the, a neighbor had called saying they heard that possible domestic violence happening there or something like that. But, um, the, you know, they made this, the really, you know, in hindsight, pretty stupid decision to to sneak up on the house and try to peek in the window. And, and that's kind of, they were creeping around like that. And this guy, you know, having no idea that they were police officers and it's dark out, he... He comes out on his porch, I think maybe with a shotgun, and then all of a sudden encounters police officers. They yell, yell at him, you know, drop the gun, drop the gun, and, and one thing leads to another. Within a matter of seconds, he was shot, and I, I believe he survived, but he was shot. And so I don't. this ends up in a 1983 civil action, and, and uh, I, I, don't, I don't remember what the trial court did, but it ends up at the Fourth Circuit. So, you know, generally, if you're holding a gun and a police officer is there and tells you to drop it and you don't, nine times out of ten, that's going to be ruled a justified shoot by the, by the police officer. I mean, it, it, just, it just is um, um, in, in many cases. Not, not, not every case. But here, that's not what happened. And if you listen to, to what Judge Gregory said, and, and as far as his thoughts in the oral argument, was that, you know, that's the way I was raised. That, that's how it would have gone down in my house. If there's somebody prowling outside, it's my right, my job to protect my family. I'm going to grab the shotgun, and I'm going to try to, to, to protect myself and my family. You know, it's self-defense. That is a right that we have. And that is kind of a both a Second Amendment thing and a Fourth Amendment thing. So in that case, it was found that the officers committed an excessive force civil rights violation by shooting this guy unnecessarily who was standing on his own front porch. Now, if you've ever wondered what part of the Constitution the term excessive force falls under, because technically that's not in the Constitution. It doesn't say excessive force anywhere. In fact, there really were no police officers in 1791. That's more of a modern concept where we have actual people in uniform sent by the government with guns to interact with the public. 
that's something that came about later and really, really multiplied because of the invention of the car. And all of a sudden, we have, we have uh, criminals spreading around the country with new ways to commit crimes. So you know, the whole concept of police officers kind of came, came about, I don't know, you know, at least around 100 years or, or over 100 years after the Constitution was written and ratified. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't say anything about excessive force or police officers in the Constitution. But federal courts have interpreted, you know, we all, I think, can agree and understand that the government is, you know, is not to, to kill people unnecessarily or, or beat them up for no good reason. I mean, we, I think we all can agree that that should not happen. But where does that fit into the Constitution? And where it has fit in is under the Fourth Amendment. So the, the Fourth Amendment um, disallow or forbids unreasonable search and seizure. So, you know, the Supreme Court over the years has interpreted, you know, a beating type situation between police and a citizen or even a shooting, an unnecessary shooting between the police and a citizen to be um, excessive force. So it falls under the Fourth Amendment as well, though it's it's just a different type of Fourth Amendment analysis, but it all falls under the Fourth Amendment. Now, for a common sense side to it, because what the law is and whether or not you should test out the law is are two different things. So when you have these gray areas or these these difficult questions. You do not want to be the person who tests that out. You don't want to make new law as a, as, as a criminal defendant or even as a civil plaintiff. I mean, let somebody else do that. So common sense comes in at some point. You know, if you do open carry a firearm, you know, would it be best to challenge the police officer or would it be easier for you to just comply with them, show them your ID, go about your, your, your way. Just be polite and cooperative. You know, that's, that's a question for each person to decide. You know, I think it depends on the circumstances. You know, you, you always want to act in your own best interest, right? Now, maybe it's important to you to exercise your rights because you want to protect those rights for other people as well. And that's great. But if, you're, if your major concern is getting where you're going as quickly as possible with, with little hassle and, and uh, you know, because it's, it's possible, even if it's not legal, that you get arrested um, out of this confrontation with law enforcement. So, you know, I don't personally want to open carry because I don't want to invite the man into my life. I, I know that some, some lady's going to call the police. And, and some lady, you know, in the police, you know, depending on which jurisdiction I'm in, you know, they may or may not understand the law. I mean, hell, there's, there's judges that don't understand the law and prosecutors that don't understand the law. And police officers don't really get all that much training on constitutional law. So, you know, I've, I've encountered police officers that still don't even understand that open carry is legal in West Virginia. Now, maybe it's best to carry concealed if you can, just to not invite the man in your life. And that's a common sense decision. It's not something that's required by law. And, you know, let's look at the second scenario. You know, there's a prowler outside. 
is it a good idea to go out onto your porch with a shotgun? I, I don't think so. Not at all. I mean, I, th- I think the proper thing to do, I mean, especially if you have kids in the house or a wife or whomever you're protecting, even if it's just you, is to stay in the house. Call the police. Let them do their job. Stay in your house. They bust through the door, shoot them. But I wouldn't go outside your front door, even if you just stay on your front porch or your back door or whatever, looking for somebody. That doesn't mean that I wouldn't do that myself. And in fact, I have done that before. I have gone outside with a with an AR in the darkness into my yard when you know for, for a reason one time in the past. And it probably probably was stupid. I mean, what what was going to happen? Good, but you know it. You know, maybe you have your your elderly parents in the house next door down the street or or other family members that may be outside. I mean, there, there's always there's always, you know, add new facts. There's always, you know, you, you can you can look at, at at whether something's a good idea or not a good idea. But looking at the, the, the facts in this guy's case. He should not, probably should not, common sense-wise, have gone out onto the front porch. I mean, because what if it is a prowler? You know, I mean, obviously the police saw him and were able to shoot him first. You know, a, a real burglar could have done that as well. And, or what if, what if it is police? So, you know, I mean, I don't know what good was going to happen. Because in West Virginia, as many other states, most states, you're not allowed to protect your property. You're not allowed to protect private property with the use of deadly force. Now, I understand that that may be different in Texas, that there's some law in Texas that allows, you know, a homeowner to shoot a, a someone, you know, someone stealing their property on their property if it's at night or something like that. And please don't take, take my word for what Texas law is. But I know it's not that way in West Virginia and pretty much any other state that, that I'm aware of. You know, it's a general thing that they even teach you in law school and like criminal law 101 is it's, a, it's not justifiable to use deadly force to protect personal property. Lives of yourself, your family, a stranger, yeah, you can use deadly force to protect a life just like a police officer can. But... You cannot use deadly force to protect private property. So someone's outside breaking in your car, and this happens. Someone's breaking in your car. You go outside, and you hold them at gunpoint. Well, what happens if things go sideways? You end up shooting an unarmed person who is breaking into your car. Well, that that might be a problem. Depending on who your prosecutor is, who your responding law enforcement officers are, you know they might arrest you. They might charge you with murder. Or maybe they don't. You know, I, do, you, do you really want to take that chance? Do you want to enter that gray area? And in fact, I'll give you a real example. And, and I've used this in seminars before where, where I've taught other lawyers, you know, the, and, and uh, law enforcement uh, management, the, you know, the actual application of the Second Amendment of self-defense law as it's been applied in West Virginia. There was a case, I think it was around Huntington, West Virginia, where um, there was a shooting involving a homeowner and a burglar that really, really went sideways and ended up with the homeowner being charged with murder. And I've used this as an example because, you know, I found all the media reports and I, I gathered as much as I could 
and to kind of illustrate how the media will throw you under the bus immediately. And then I gathered the criminal case file and then all the jury instructions just to show people, you know, just anyone who who is prepared to use a firearm in their own self-defense in their home. You know, what can potentially happen, what the law is, what the jurors themselves who decide your fate will be told the law is. And so it doesn't get any more from the source than that. Now, a different judge in a different uh, judicial circuit might use slightly different words and, and jury instructions, but but you know this is this is one of, these are one of the best sources and and I've I've published these before in some of my uh, seminar materials. But here's basically what happened: is there was a legitimate uh, bad guy breaking into the good guy's home, and then there was a shooting where the homeowner used uh, you know self defense or arguably self defense and shot and killed the guy. But here was the problem: the guy started to run away, I believe, or, or went outside the house onto the sidewalk. And he was actually killed by the homeowner outside the house, outside the front door, in front of the house on the sidewalk. That's where the death occurred by shooting. And that was a fact that changed everything. And of course, as you'll see, the media jumped on him. Okay, you you can look at the media accounts and they didn't report it really accurately as, you know, there was a bad guy breaking into the good guy's home. I mean, it sounded like this guy was the punisher, like a vigilante chasing this guy down the street. But the fact that the shooting took place out the front door is a fact that, you know, it 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 caused this guy to be charged with murder and have to go through the whole ordeal of over a year-long prosecution and then a jury trial where he didn't know if he was going to spend the rest of his life in prison. But to make a long story short, it went all the way with pre-trial, bad pre-trial publicity from the local news media, who generally is anti-Second Amendment, anti-citizen self-defense. Not always, of course, but in this particular case, the proof's in the pudding I've put it up on my uh, blog before. You can you can read it yourself. I think I have anyway, so I'll have to look at that. But but anyways, the only rights this guy had, I mean, because a prosecutor, if they decide they want to burn you, I mean, they're going to do it. The only right you have as a criminal defendant, if you get charged with a crime, especially murder, is to prepare your defense and walk up and, and, and hire a lawyer to get up in front of those 12 jurors that that have to unanimously make a decision and you've got to convince them i mean you don't have to the prosecution has the burden to prove you guilty but that's the only thing you can do is convince those people or have a good lawyer that can convince those people that you were acting in in, in self-defense and you can look up on my website what, what the actual jury instructions were themselves but there's no doubt that had the sh- had the shots occurred inside that front door, he never would have been there at that trial. It's because it was outside the front door. So, you know, what is our takeaway from that? Okay, so if you have a burglary situation, you pull your gun out. The guy runs. He runs out the front door. Should you chase him out the front door and shoot him in the back as he's running away? Would it be fair? Yes. Would he deserve it? Yes. But should you do it? 
no, unless you want to get charged with murder. There are certain circumstances where you could do it and get away with it. I mean, even police officers are allowed sometimes to shoot somebody who's running away from them in the back. And that's what I think, was it Garner v. Jones or Tennessee v. Jones? Uh, it's a Tennessee case. Maybe Tennessee v. Garner? I don't know. Something like that. They call it the, quote, fleeing felon rule. It's very popular to talk about. I don't recall ever actually seeing it in, in real life because, you know, even as a police officer, you don't want to have to rely on the fleeing felon rule. So generally, you don't want to shoot people in the back. Generally, you don't want to shoot unarmed people, even as, as a police officer. Could you make a case for it being justified? Could you get away with it? Yeah. But why take that chance? We don't want to enter into the gray areas. All right, switching gears here, um, let's talk about a different sort of an issue. Um, a lot of people are type 2 diabetic, and including my father, and they have to routinely check their blood sugar levels. And they use these little uh, meters and testing strips that are fairly expensive. Um, and you have to use it every day. His more expensive one, the original one that he used, was made by a company named Freestyle. And like I said, it, it, it was more expensive. And the local grocery store chain uh, that you know, many, many of you probably have, Kroger, they have a generic version of pretty much everything, including, believe it or not, these little testing strips. And it's a lot less expensive. So I have a feeling that a lot of people are using these strips. Well, anyways, when he finally tried out these less expensive Kroger brand testing strips, I mean, just automatically, boom, like the, his numbers were, were uh, way different. Um, so he started comparing the two, and, and uh, he got a little suspicious. And, you know, after several days of comparing them between the two meters, he, he purchased a second one from Kroger and uh, to see if the results were any different. And that this was, the Kroger version was called OnSync, I believe. And the first new results showed that his sugar was even higher than the first one. So his first generic Kroger uh, meter and testing strip was much higher than his old one, his more expensive one. He buys another one because he thinks maybe it's broken, and the second one's even higher than that. So, you know, he keeps testing it. So he, for, for instance, on, he, he starts keeping track of it. So on November 3rd, he checked his Freestyle Light, which is a more expensive one. So it registers 136 as far as blood sugar goes. So then he checks the first Kroger on sync brand generic one, and it registers 153, a higher level of blood sugar. And so then he tries the second one using the same exact blood, and it registers a 176. So then he realizes, well, man, there's something wrong here. So he starts to, to just keep track of this and compare these meters, and he, I think he buys other ones, and he keeps, he keeps checking them. Um, the next day, November 4th, he's got four meters now, all using a single uh, sample of blood from a single big finger prick that he managed to, to get a bunch of blood out of. And then he'd start alternating which meter was used first and which, which meter would, would be used last in order to just test the accuracy of these meters. And, you know, he's 
He's again. He's an orthopedic surgeon. He's not a, a, a scientist, or a, you know, this isn't done in a lab. He's just doing this to to confirm his own suspicions about kind of what's going on here. And so, you know, he checks it the next day, and the freestyle light meters deviated as much as twenty five points of blood sugar from the generic versions. So what's going on here is basically what his, you know, unscientific uh, experimentation has shown so far is that the freestyle light meters, the more expensive one, you know, the kind of the tried and true that that Kroger is copying always have been yielding significant, significantly lower glucose readings uh, or blood sugar readings than the Kroger generic on sync brand. So there were deviations at times between two identical pairs even. But the deviation between the freestyle, the more expensive pair, and the Kroger pair always produced a higher result of blood sugar or glucose reading on the generic versions. So what is the significance of that? Well, the significance of that is, is that people who have diabetes have to regulate their diet and their medication based on their glucose levels. So if you have a falsely elevated level, such as is, is apparently happening with these generic brands, or generic brand anyways, the patient will have to increase, or as a result of the readings, will necessarily increase their medications or their insulin, or even notify their doctor that their sugar level is out of control. And that may lead to the physician prescribing different and po possibly even more toxic medications. So if the meter reading is erroneously low, then the patient will ha have a false sense of security and feel like he can eat uh, more liberally or withhold some medications because he's controlling his diabetes really well um, with diet and exercise, at least according to um, his meter. So which is correct here is the more... Uh, expensive and older version, um, the freestyle brand, is that the correct one that is consistently low? Or is the Kroger's generic version called OnSync, is that, which is consistently too high, is that the correct blood sugar? And I don't know the answer to that. Uh, you know, and it's, I wonder how many people are using the, this Kroger brand and how many people are using this other brand, just like my father is. And I wonder whether anyone else has noticed this um, or anyone else um, has the same issue. Because no matter how many times he repeats it, it keeps showing these disparate results between the two types of meters. So that really could have a, a real healthcare effect and possibly real damage on people based on what, you know, somebody's got a faulty product because you, you, you can't have two different glucose levels. You know, one could be good, one could be bad. That, that can't be the real fact. One of them has to be incorrect. So, you know, I would urge really anybody who has any other experience in this, um, if anyone's using these different meters, you might check that yourself and see if you see similar results. And, you know, I'm not aware of anybody going after this issue, but somebody's got a faulty product out there. And, you know, it's just something to think about. 
you know, any, anyone out there who, who is concerned about this or has had similar experiences, at least if you're in West Virginia, you know, contact me. Um, my law office email is jhb at johnbryanlaw.com. Um, you can also check out my website at johnbryanlaw.com. You can give my office a call. It's Our office number is 304-772-4999. Um, sometimes, some days we get crazy numbers of calls, and we can't answer every call as it rings. Um, we also have an answering service, if need be, that's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So leave a message, and, and we'll get back to you. You know, also, if you have any, any kind of issues like civil rights issues, um, you know, give me a call, send me an email. It's best not to send the Facebook messages because I, I, sometimes I see those, sometimes I don't. You know, I still haven't figured out, you know, how some of those Facebook messages end up in completely other places than you would think that they would be. So those are, those are hit or miss, and I, I don't get notifications for those when they come in because it would be going off all day. So sometimes I see those, you know, weeks later. Sometimes I see them when they come in. Sometimes I never see them at all. So, you know, give our office a call. Don't be shy. Send us an email. Well, I'm not sure how long. We've even gone on here. But uh, I, I appreciate you listening to the John Bryan podcast. And uh, I look forward to doing it again. And uh, always, you know, one of the best ways to learn and help grow your brain and your mental process and your your ability to even speak to a jury is to practice. And, you know, and one of the best ways to learn is to teach other people. So, you know, I enjoy uh, uh, teaching history. You can check out my my other podcast, the Scavengeology podcast. Just It's just, that's the name, Scavengeology. And uh, listen to some, some cool history stuff. Uh, or, you know, check out my law firm website at johnbryanlaw.com. And again, I appreciate you listening to the John Bryan podcast, and hopefully I'm able to do it again soon.